Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, but I don't have a big conference coming up that's taking up all my time. I can't imagine how you're doing. <laughs> I had my second shot of the vaccine yesterday, and people had warned me that I should probably take the day off. And so this is my last thing for the day at lunchtime. I, it's kind of flu-like symptoms for people who are about to go get it themselves. Not fun, put it that way. But I'm glad I'm vaccinated from COVID. And our listeners should be glad that you're feeling bad. You can't do anything, but you dragged yourself up to record a podcast for them. I know, right? See, the dedication. Although I did cancel the rehearsal for my build session. <laughs> yeah, what's more so, important? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. I get mine a second on Sunday. So we shall see how, uh, oh, how well. it's going. Yeah. But fortunately, Monday's a holiday in the UK, so the, the office, I can work, but the office will be closed, so no one will know if I'm working or not. Oh, so. that's what you're going to have, Wes nagging yeah. you. Yeah. We have Christos Maskus on the show to talk about Azure Identity and secretless applications, but I just want to give a shout out to the, the 425 show, which you get to at dev.2 slash 425 show. They do some really good content on there. I wish I had more time to watch the live streams, but they do have them on demand afterwards. I really like their approach and the way they kind of go in the weeds and deep on those things. They're definitely like true advocates of identity. So if you're in this space and you like this show, I'd recommend checking out those things and see if you can squeeze in watching live on the calendar because it's definitely a better experience live because you can have comments and have them interact with you, which is you know something you can't do with this podcast. Yeah, I have yet to find time to attend their uh, live streams as well, but certainly on the, on the list one of these days. What else did you find this week? Well, we'll start out with a couple things near and dear to your heart. The mailbag had a new item dropped this week. Uh, create engaging apps with the Microsoft Teams Activity Feed API. And so this is always something that confused me when it first came out about what's activity feeds and notifications and so on and so forth. And, and what this particular feature will allow me to use the graph endpoint to put an item in the Microsoft Teams application on the top left behind the bell, right? If I got that right, the activity, right. Like, yes, yeah. yeah. So for a while you could do this, I know we could do this from the bot framework, you can you can send us you know, a certain message to a user and have it show up there as well, but this now lets us do it outside the bot framework as well, just using the API that we all love. Yeah, I've seen um, Yammer internally is doing this, love or hate it. Um, I actually found myself discovering content that way where someone posts an announcement to a Yammer group I'm a member of and without me having to go into Yammer or have my inbox spammed. It's just there something I can just check out if I want directly in Teams and mark it in red or remark it as unread and check it out later on. And you can actually kind of interact with Yammer in that way because it's essentially a personal app that loads when you click on the activity feed. So I do like this as a way of bringing things to your attention. I am a little bit concerned about once every ISV partner starts using it, that this thing becomes even more overwhelming than it does them. <laughs> me having the afternoon off and getting a Monday and having like a hundred unread things in my activity feed um, to check as well as mail. That, that's always a concern when folks find a different way to get your attention once the marketers get yeah. involved. But you know, for, for developers, obviously our, our audience, I would always caution that this would work best if you have a personal app already installed for the users so that when they click on the item in the activity feed, you're giving them something that 
is relevant and in context, not necessarily just a link off to some crazy place. So Yeah, and also give your user the choice of like subscribing there and not getting the email in the inbox so you're not like double dipping on it, which is what Yammer does, which is nice. So just some consideration to users, but I think it is useful if people live in teams. It's a great way of doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And something related, uh, there is a change notification API for Teams messages. And so I know the words always get kind of confusing here between notifications and subscriptions, <laughs> but let me try this, right? <laughs> I can create a subscription, which the rest of the world developer-wise calls webhooks. Have I got that right? That's right. Yeah, excellent. So the <laughs> we can subscribe to messages in a channel or in a chat. Now, is this using the event hub stuff that we saw coming down, or is that not quite there yet? No, yeah. So um, I didn't know this until we did the event Azure Event Hub change notifications blog post. But whatever webhook you have on the graph, you can also configure it as an Azure Event Hub too. So there is no like it's not like the Teams team have to go build additional capability to get in Azure Event Hubs. If it's a webhook, it automatically gets that capability, which is really, really cool, which is a little bit unusual for us, actually. Usually we announce a feature and then every engineering team has to go do something. So um, <laughs> credit to that team that worked on that, that they were able to do it without having anyone do anything behind the scenes. Yeah, there's a bunch of really cool APIs that are going into public preview here for Teams. You know, subscribing to all messages, and replies in a channel or subscribe to a message in a chat. A lot of these scenarios are coming through. One thing I will say though is there's a lot of debate on whether you should be doing this versus using a bot. And I don't think our guidance is enormously great in this area yet. It'll be interesting as we speak to partners about why they want to use this versus doing a bot and then providing that kind of prescriptive guidance more broadly in our docs. So just bear that in mind that there is an alternative. Well, that'd be interesting conversation because if if I if a bot only gets a message if it is at mentioned, but my ex expectation on a change notification would be if I'm allowed to see the chat or the channel conversation, I can get notified of every message, not just things at mentioned to the bot. Yeah, I think that's the main main reason for it, and a lot of this is coming from an e-discovery compliance type scenario. But yeah, you're right. Like if, if the bot isn't at mentioned, then the bot doesn't know about it happening. Whereas this is guaranteeing that every single thing that's happening in the channel, regardless of the map mentioning, it can monitor. Yeah. And you know what? I clicked on the link that says, you know, the, the page that describes the Microsoft Graph API for change notifications. And last time I looked at it, it had like Outlook message and Outlook event. And now it's got a whole bunch of stuff. So it's great to see that service being fleshed out amongst the service. So great job to all those teams for doing all that. Yeah, it's really cool to see that evolve and mature there. And, um, you know, kudos to Nick and Raju in the Teams team that um, are putting punching these things out too. It's exciting. All right. So while I understand and can speak well about bots and notifications, this next one I cannot speak well at all. Microsoft's design team is looking for a new default font. <laughs> so I can post a link to the page, but as, when we talk about design, we, we all know the story there. But Yeah, it popped up in my, I use Google News and Apple News. And actually, I'm finding Google News is getting so spammy with blog posts that I'm relying more on Apple News now. And it came up in both. And I had a read of this. And it's interesting. My dad was, well, he still is a graphic designer 40 years later. And we've often had discussion around fonts and different things. And, you know, I spent 15, 16 years of age retyping brochures that people have brought into my dad's company to format them so he could print them out. And like, I'd have to go match the fonts by looking at the serifs and sans serifs and that 
this is kind of near and dear to my heart. And I, don't, I actually like Calibri. It's easy on the eyes to read. Remember the days of Times New Roman. It's funny that they're doing this, that they're crowdsourcing it and actually sharing what the options are. I'd be intrigued to see how this goes. Actually, what, what piqued my interest more was the cloud fonts, which I didn't know was a thing in Windows, but apparently it is. Because <laughs> um, the Adobe Creative Suite will do cloud fonts, and now there's some new Office uh, cloud fonts as well. And for those who don't know what that is, uh, it will, like in this particular example, the Office clients, Word or uh, Excel or PowerPoint, you can choose the font and it'll go out to the cloud and download it and put it somewhere on your computer, but not necessarily install it as a, as a font inside Windows. So it just works uh, in the office clients and, and folks, you know, anyone else who gets your document in Word would be able to see it as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So good uh, things coming from really there. really cool. That is very cool. And and then I have a community-related design post as well. Huh. Stefan Bauer. Look at you with a segue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got a little bit of skills. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Stefan Bauer, who's been on the show in the past, has created an uh, open source alternative for Microsoft's Fluent UI web design system. This is called H2O, H-T-W-O-O. Uh, kind of clever play on words there, but he is using just HTML and CSS to render things that look a lot like Fluent UI, which uses a bunch of React components and stuff. So again, I'm not as well versed on this. And uh, I did put an item in my calendar to reach out to Stefan once things settle down and get him back on to talk about it. But I wanted to get this in front of folks to see what he's going on here. The the little tag says 100% DOM manipulation free, (laughs) which is too funny. I'm guessing that's a dig at Fluent UI, but I I don't know enough about this stuff to comment. It it does kind of disappoint him. No, why why are we doing this? Like Microsoft is really getting behind um, Fluent as a way to go forward. Like we've got all of our teams internally are moving towards it. So, yeah, I think it would be good to come kind of understand it. It's just for external folks, it's so hard. You got to find, I mean, between doing yeah. what the Teams SDK is using and what SPFX is using and the Office add-ins, you're on your own, from what I remember. So, it's it's a bit confusing outside. <laughs> so, but it's nice to see stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be good to get him on to talk about that. Um, just so that people understand why he's doing it. I will rest judgment until then. But yeah, maybe we could do a fluent UI team, PM and Stefan in the room. That would be an interesting podcast, wouldn't it? Oh, there you go. Excellent. Well, so everyone should be continuing to listen because this show focuses on identity and we all know that's the best thing to talk about. So <laughs> to be fair, I was actually really interested in this one. Sometimes I glaze over on this all stuff, primarily because I don't know, it's hard to put a number on it, but a fair amount of the escalations we get internally from partners is about auth um, and what they're doing, permissions, scopes wise or what have you. So um, it was good to get some direction on where things are going here from Christos and have him explain things in a way. I've not really heard the identity team explain things before, so I'm hoping that permeates through the rest of the team. Yeah, and it's not as technical as we've done in the past on identity. It's so true. It, it, it's really kind of reading a fo- And that's because the, the libraries are much more uh, beneficial or, or less geeky, I guess you will. So it's certainly worth a listen. Thanks to Christos for coming on. And uh, go take your nap, buddy. And next week we'll both be, you know, COVID-free and uh, off we go. Yeah, that's right. We'll be like Captain America's, both of us. I um, struggle through that, so apologies. But um, <laughs> enjoy and uh, have a good week. Okay, so we're here with Christos Maskus today. How are you, mate? I am good. It's been a while, I guess, since we've seen each other. 
for the people who are listening, they can't see your very fancy neon sign behind you for the 425 show. Do you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the 425 show? Absolutely. Thanks for having me once again. It's been almost a year since the last time that we actually synced. Uh, I work for the Identity Division as a developer advocate. My role is to speak to developers and help them be successful with Identity and write more secure software. The 45 show, it's uh, something that we kicked off last July, so almost a year now. And our goal is to stream twice weekly, Tuesdays and Fridays, and touch upon end-to-end scenarios that developers are facing when building stuff. It doesn't have to be always about identity, but since we know identity touches almost everything out there, uh, there's always this kind of nice element of how do you add identity to this kind of solution, but we always try to do it in an end-to-end scenario. So if you're building, let's say, an Azure function that calls into some uh, Azure resources, we want to show you how to do that securely end-to-end, not just the identity component, then we just dump you to the mercy of the docs or trying to for you to work it out yourself. So that's, that's in, a, in an essence, what the 45 show is, end-to-end scenarios and having fun with developers building stuff online. And like auth is 85% of the problem and then it's really easy to call the graph on top, right? That's the way I always frame it. Exactly. Once you get your tokens and everything <laughs> else is easy, just getting the tokens is the problem. Yeah, it's amazing. Like it's, I mean, it's improved a lot. I haven't done a hackathon in a while, obviously, because of the pandemic. But I do remember like five years ago doing these hackathons where like it was a two-day event. You would spend a good few hours explaining to all the concepts of Azure AD and registering the app and tokens and mcell back then it was adel and all the permission consent strings and then they'd be like okay now what and it, well then you just call this http request and you'll get, get the results back <laughs> things have moved on quite a bit i have to admit that uh, even since i joined the division right a year ago uh, around this time it was when we just started with microsoft Web, like silly working on that and making it public and for dotnet developers the story is absolutely brilliant these days yeah, and I really like the work like um, Nicola and Matulev and um, Beth and Elise and all those folks have been doing around Microsoft Graph Toolkit because it steps on, to, you know, on top of all that goodness that MSL's got to make it like literally one line of code to get you running in a web app if you're doing kind of like you know, React or Angular or whatever the framework du jour is. So yeah, and it's good to have you guys kind of building that baselining and then other teams building on top like that. I would chime in regarding Microsoft.identity.web and the .NET platform. Uh, yes, I'm using it. Uh, there's a couple things I, I want to change, and guess what? The source is open. I can download the stuff I want. All the samples that I've built uh, is using just like the in-memory cache, just to show how the, the benefits of caching tokens and stuff. It's great. It's it's great library, and it's made things much easier. And and if it's not doing exactly what you want, source code's there. Download it off at it. So great job on doing all that. Yeah, open source. Have we moved away, Christos, from the providing guidance of how to store the tokens now? I know like, you know, if I bring up like Vittorio, the man mountain that we all know and love and miss, he was very kind of had a particular perspective on like not providing guidance on that and making the developers might kind of make those decisions themselves. Where do we stand on that now? What's the main stance there? Because I do get that question every now and again from people who've been around the traps for a bit. Yeah, I think caching is very, very important when you work with uh, tokens. And things are improving quite a bit. We can probably touch upon that one later with continuous access evaluation coming very soon. I think that's going to make the whole story much more interesting. But for uh, for token caching, I think Microsoft.end.web has moved to the right direction where they have built in uh, capabilities for either 
providing you with a session cache, an in-memory cache, or a distributed cache. And then from, from that point onward, depending on what your solution looks like, most likely if you're running in production, you want to be at least in session caching, if not to say distributed caching by default. And because it's all part of the .NET pipeline, once you add a distributed cache, let's say Redis for the rest of your web app, the identity library can actually tag along and say, I want to use that one as well for my token caching. Therefore, with a single line of code, we, we light up the, the, the caching capabilities and you don't have to roll out your own serialization, deserialization, which was the case before with uh, MSAL or is still the case with MSAL if you're working on a, say, desktop app, right? So the web has moved on quite significantly. Desktop is catching up and mobile, but yeah, significant improvements in the, in the web space. And I always like to have different people explain this because obviously Paul is our resident identity person, but it's nice to get other perspectives. Well, well no, I mean, uh, Christos is today. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it necessary to have caching, caching, cacking, whatever? How are you going to pronounce it in this world? Why is it necessary with the kind of the auth flows that we do in web and desktop and different bits? Should, uh, should we let Paul take this one or do you want to answer No, no this I'm one? asking for your opinion. I don't really care about Paul's today. <laughs> because the, 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 the thing that we want to avoid is obviously overloading the identity service um, with multiple requests. So if you acquire a token, then what you want to do is re be able to reuse that token to go and access resources. And you don't have to go back to the identity service provider to give you that token every single time they have to do the request. Now, the duration of the token caching is something that has been a challenge for a lot of people because we want to provide a, a token cache that is valid for enough time to make sure that users are not affected by being prompted to re-authenticate. And at the same time, we want to also ensure that if something changes in the user's abilities to access a resource, we want to revoke that permission. And as I said, as I mentioned earlier on, continuous access evaluation is something that Microsoft is working on alongside the, the bigger consortium to ratify and standardize this. But in effect, what we want to be able to do is, let's say I, I sign into my Outlook this morning and suddenly I, I receive the bad news from a manager. He calls me up and says, Christos, it's been great working with you, but you know we need to part ways. I uh, hope that never happens, but let's say that this happens, right? <laughs> now, I am signing into my Outlook. Yeah, that, that's, that's a horrible story, but uh, <laughs> I'm signing into my Outlook. I have my access token. That means I can still access my emails, right? Even though I have been fired, I have received the bad news. How can Microsoft now protect their resources from me accessing them while my token is still valid? And therefore, you know, the token has been issued for an hour or it could be for 10 hours. I can still access stuff. So continuous access evaluation will allow the application to prompt or get receive a message that says, you know, Christos is not part of Azure AD anymore. And therefore, he should not have access to resources. And that prompt will actually uh, remove or revoke the access to those resources. And it's going to be fantastic because that would mean that I can now issue a 24-hour access token to someone it can last for 24 hours and I can revoke it at any point. Therefore, there's resilience. I don't have to go back to the identity provider for another 24 hours. And therefore, even if the identity provider is down, I should still be able to access, let's say, exchange. I don't have to go via Azure AD to validate the token. So resilience comes there. And then uh, on the other side, for, from an enterprise perspective, security comes in. At any point, I can issue a message that says this, this person should not have access to any of the organizational resources. And as long as the applications can receive and process that message, 
We don't know what that will look like. Therefore, that why we're working with the enterprise uh, or the industry to ratify this. Once that message is received, we can respond to that accordingly within the application. So this continuous evaluation, as a as a developer, I kind of expect that to just happen automatically as part of the MSL library. Am I covered there? Ideally, you know, ideally you, do, you wouldn't have to do much, but consider this. Let's say Azure AD says, or you go into Azure AD as an admin and you remove a person. That should trigger some kind of an event. Therefore, the applications or, you know, the solutions that you build need to be able to receive and respond to that. Whether that's an event or an endpoint inside graph that we need to uh, look after, whether that's a webhook that we need to build into MSAL, whether that's some kind of, we don't really know what that would look like because we haven't really agreed what that message should be. And we don't want to come up with our own proprietary solutions as Microsoft. Identity is built on, on standards like OAuth2 and OpenID Connect. And therefore, there should be a standard that uh, defines how continuous access evaluation should be implemented across the industry. We're working on that. And that's that's probably the most exciting thing that's going to come to identity over the next few months. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's cool. And I know like most developers that are building apps just assume once you're off, you're in. Yes. Um, and so there will be a design pattern change that will have to happen where whether it's a notification thing that says actually, no, you, although this person was in using this particular app, now they're not. Um, so there's, regardless of MZL coping with something, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously it could just throw a permission denied and then the app hopefully has got already something in there that checks for permission, permission divide and show some kind of yeah different user experience for that. But um, no, that's really neat. I, we do get the token thing a lot and complaints around tokens expiring and having to re refresh tokens to get new tokens. And mm -hmm. so this will definitely help there. And it's good that we're kind of doing it from an industry standard perspective as well like the way it's going. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the, this blog post you put out recently. We'll have a link in the show notes, but you put a word in there that I am going to totally steal called secretless apps. Oh, <laughs> so will, will you uh, <laughs> define that word for us uh, in the context of uh, your blog post here? Absolutely. Um, I think just before we jumped on this call, we're talking about secrets and certificates and authenticating and passing credentials all around. And as we know, um, developers can be lazy. Uh, developers will find try to go for the easy way out. And it's not unheard of to, to see secrets checked into source control, secrets uh, checked into or shared in an Excel spreadsheet or put in a post-it note. And as we all know, these are these can be attack vectors. Even if they're not stored in the in your code, secrets are used all the time for resources to access other resources. That's the whole point. Uh, when we do authentication, sometimes we have a client secret that we need to use to make sure that the web service can authenticate to Azure AD. When we, uh, when we need to access other resources, let's say storage or a third-party API, your weather service or whatever, usually there's an API key somewhere that you need to pass along just to make sure that you have paid for the service and you can access it securely and also to not let anyone else access your data. Therefore, secrets are a fundamental part of writing secure software. Whether that secret is a, is a some string or a certificate, it doesn't matter. And um, we've always talked about Kivol, right? Kivol is fantastic because you can store your secrets, but somehow you have to access Kivol in the first place to get your secrets out. And it was always the lowest common denominator. How can we remove secrets from our applications to allow developers to write secure software? And before we even go into the horror stories of me taking my SendGrid key to 
to GitHub and then the next day waking up on 30,000 emails like, my God, I went viral overnight. And it was like, no, no, you actually checked in your uh, your SendGrid key and somebody used that to send 30,000 emails or for, oh from companies falling victims to cyber attacks because they you know, they, they put clear text passwords somewhere in the source code or somebody had disclosed that over the telephone. No, things happen. We want to eliminate secrets. That's the, the whole point there. So through a combination of Azure AD backed up services and the Azure Identity Library, if you are working on Azure, we actually give you the ability to store secrets securely and retrieve them from Azure Key Vault or eliminate secrets altogether and directly access resources using Azure Active Directory backed up identities. A very simple example is uh, accessing Cosmos data, Cosmos DB data from your application uh, without having a Cosmos key. Up until very recently, you had to provide a key to authenticate. And that was always a problem because first, I don't like dealing with keys. I can stick them in Key Vault and that's okay. It's a, it's a round trip to Key Vault to get my secret. Or now, it means that with the support of Azure Active Directory, I can authenticate as a user and then access the application or access the data via uh, a managed identity. The reason why I also like this solution, especially if you're working with Azure, is that it works everywhere. It just doesn't work only in production with managed identities. It works on your local development environment. Therefore, we remove the onus from developers to having to deal with secrets. Now, I know people that deleted production databases because they had access to the production subscription by mistake. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to delete some records or I'm going to delete a database and they did it. So it's not always a malicious attack. It's the fact that I have too much responsibility in my hands and something can go wrong. Developers should be super happy because they don't have to store secrets. Enterprises should be super happy because they have two or three people that have access to those secrets. In fact, those secrets should actually be in Key Vault, and then they manage those secrets and access to those secrets via Azure Active Directory. And therefore, end-to-end secretless development becomes a reality. In fact, you don't even have to run on Azure. Hell, I can make it run on your local machine in some random data center uh, using Azure Arc, which also supports managed identities. And therefore, it runs everywhere. So it's not even an Azure-only capability. It's backed up by Azure AD and it can happen anywhere. You know, you can hear the excitement in my voice. So what what are the steps then? How, how would that alternate from what, what I would do right now where I'm putting secrets into uh, config files that then MSAL reads and does the auth hops for me? There are two requirements. One is for the resource to support um, secretless access. Therefore, supporting a managed identity authentication capability. Uh, managed identities are identities that are issued and managed by uh, Azure via Azure Active Directory. And there are very specific identities that are used to run an application. So in Azure Web Apps, you run the application under the context of that managed identity. And then you say that I want only this managed identity to be able to go and access data in say SQL. And in fact, I only want this managed identity to have read writes to my SQL database. And then I can also define another managed identity that has writes to that SQL database and therefore even segregating the data based on identities. So therefore the resource, SQL Server, Cosmos DB, storage need to support managed identity. And then the second half is the Azure SDK needs to support that 
The other SDK is the team is doing a fantastic job. Big shout out to them. They've been very good at unifying everything, creating a very uh, consistent model on how you can program and consume Azure services. And at the core of the library, one of the components that they wrote is the Azure identity. So Azure identity now uh, is the driving force for allowing you to authenticate and call services. And because Azure identity supports multiple token providers, it can be your local account, which we would encourage you not to use. It can be a service principal account, it can be a managed identity, it can be your environmental variables. Please don't use environmental variables. It can be Azure CLI, Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code. So what it does, it intelligently, intelligently looks for credentials. It will find one and it says, hey, I found one, I'm going to try to connect. And as long as that account has permission to access those resources, then it happens magically or automatically, as I like to call it. And therefore, as a developer, all I have to say is a new token provider or new token credential, uh, go and find me the right one in my code and then pass that token credential to the library, Azure SDK uh, Cosmos or Azure SDK Storage. And it happens. It's like, it's brilliant. It takes three lines of code to do all that. And it's usually more configuration, making sure that the account that you're going to use has the right permissions. But the fact that it transcends across all environments, dev, QA, production, and you don't have to change a single line of code, it's just magic. You know, and I just want to interject, there's a few things that you didn't mention, but it's also supported for Key Vault and App Config. Oh, so, yeah. for example, in our scenario, my dev pipeline principle has write access to set configuration, but my runtime apps don't have read-only access. So in that scenario, we can make sure that Paul's not screwing up the configuration in production by you know, doing something wrong because it's all part of the pipeline. So real, real good work there, yeah. Yes. And for, for Key Vault, the nice thing is that, let's say you, you're using a service that doesn't support um, Mazdenty. I think EventGrid does not support it yet. Oh, it could be wrong. If I'm wrong, uh, please correct me. Or oh, let's say Batch, right? Azure Batch. I need to access Azure Batch. I need to, to have my keys. Unfortunately, it doesn't use Mazdenty. What I can do is I can use Mazdenty or the Azure SDK library to go and secretlessly access my Key Vault and take the, the keys for the service that doesn't support that yet. So... It's a runtime thing in memory that happens only when the code is running. So again, I don't have to store any secrets. I just have a reference to my secret in Key Vault. How does that work if you're using managed identities with Azure AD calling the graph, for instance, in an app-only application, non-interactive flow? Like, What's that process there for that? If I wanted to get rid of client secrets from my current background Timer job that wakes up in Azure that calls Mail API, for instance, as a application flow. So uh, I haven't tried this scenario, but I know that the Graph SDK has a token provider library that mm -hmm. supports multiple scenarios. One is a service principle, one is um, environmental variables again. Because uh, as much as we like to unify our stories, sometimes we diverge in certain scenarios, but we're working yeah. on making them consistent. Uh, so I think from from that perspective, as long as the as long as the application is running under Manas identity context, and as long yeah. as the token provider for Graph supports a Manas identity, then that Manas identity has to have the right permissions. Um, and for that, because it's running under a Manas identity, it needs to be application permissions, and therefore you need to have a a grant. Uh, admin consent for those permissions for that specific right. account. But as long as you do that, then it should just work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really neat. 
So this token credential class that you you referenced, I know it's in .NET. Obviously, that's what I use. But what other developer languages and platforms is that rolled out with yet? Obviously, the SDK teams are kind of moving target. But as of today, at least, uh, where, where can I find them? The easiest way to do that is azure.com forward slash SDK. These guys have their own uh, URL on under azure.com, which is absolutely brilliant. I was like, how did you manage to pull that off? Anyway, uh, ak.ms forward slash azsdk or azure.com forward slash SDK will take you to the exact same place. The SDK's team has done a fantastic job in actually uh, providing uh, libraries for most of the major frameworks, including .NET and languages. So .NET, Java, JavaScript, Python, Go, some of the ones that come to mind. And I'm pretty sure that they're working on some more exotic ones. But the, the important bit is to have wide coverage of all the services that we need to call and have a consistent uh, API surface. And they're, they're, the nice thing also as well is that rather than getting a .NET developer to write the Python code, which we would do in the past, so it was like .NET Python code, which looked awful. We actually got proper Python developers to write idiosynchromatic Python code. So when I, when I pick it up, if I'm a .NET developer, I can see that the pattern looks like .NET, but if I'm a Python developer, it looks like real Python code. So these guys are really looking to align with the expectations of the community. Yeah, my experience with the SDKs has been great. So I re really, really like that. Now, you touched a little bit on what um, or I, I touched a little bit about I don't know, the blog post that you you posted here on your, your secure API. So can you tell us what was the scenario that you're demonstrating in this blog post so that folks get a kind of a big picture? Uh, I can't remember which one. Well, we've done quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Secure APIs using Node, Azure AD, Cosmos, and the Azure SDKs. Oh, yeah. 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 That was the last one. So I wanted to touch on a few things because uh, Node MSL got released two or three weeks ago. So we hit GA with Node MSL. And I was like, you know what? I always wanted to write an, an API in Node that used MSL to you know, validate tokens and then acquire tokens for downstream APIs. So the samples, uh, if you go to GitHub, you'll find a, a whole heap of samples. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to just call graph because developers usually create APIs that are fairly complex. They would call into some other data. They will call into some other APIs. And graph can be one of them, right? Enriching user data and making more um, immersive experience. So what I did is I created a, a Node.js API with uh, three different endpoints. One hits a graph, so it uses MSL. And then the other two endpoints uh, hit Cosmos because I wanted to test the Cosmos uh, secretless access because uh, Cosmos added that uh, capability at Ignite back in February. So it's a fairly new ACE uh, capability that not many people know. So I wanted to authenticate with Azure AD and use the Azure Identity library to do that. I've managed to do that. Uh, I had a read-only permission to my Cosmos for that account. And then I had another API endpoint, which was about um, reading blob data. And it was it was fun building it because I learned quite a few things. Like for example, if you create a read-only permission, you can use the the SDK to do uh, check if the database exists and if it doesn't exist, go and create it. So that was a, a fun <laughs> a fun error I came across. Like you guys said that it's working, but it's broken. It doesn't work yet. So I reached out to the product program team and they were like, "Well, you're doing it wrong. So it's not us. It's you. It's a you problem." Um, Therefore, I learned along the process. And that knowledge is actually something that we instill to developers by blogging or streaming about it. That was the scenario I wanted to cover there because many people try to do node, app, node apps or server-side web apps with Node. And this was a great scenario to look into that. 
Yeah, I have to say, when I was looking at the code, I saw you're doing a JWT.verify call, which I have to be honest, I haven't, I can't remember the last time I had to write code to verify a token because of the, the Microsoft.identity.web stuff in the .NET space. It does it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so, uh, is I guess what I'm getting at is if, if I'm in the Node world, is there a similar type of library or, or is this example, is that, that JWT library that I'm looking at here, is that part of what you guys are shipping as well? Yeah, this is the, I mean, this is an open source library, so it's a prescriptive way of of validating tokens. Lots of people lots of people will say, well, I have um, the token is coming in and I'm good, but there are steps. In fact, we I enriched the sample to also look at the scopes. So the default sample that we have in our samples would only verify the token and make sure that the signatures and expiration dates have not expired and what have you. However, it failed to check for scopes. And therefore I was like, well, what, what if I pass you a valid token for this resource, it wasn't even taking for resources. I'll pass you a valid token and then that's all I'm doing, right? Therefore, an extra step of security is to verify that the the token has the right scope for your, for your resource. And uh, with that, I added a method there that would say, you know, verify that the incoming token has the right scope. And I would only allow you to execute the query to Cosmos if you had the, the, the scope for the Cosmos endpoint. So, it, you know, you have to acquire a different token for different resources. And therefore, the same token to that API would not work. It has to be a different one. And the other bit I really, that caught my eye, or what I really like with this managed identity a bit is right back in the day, I would have to validate the token that came in to me, and then I'd have to go get a token for the resource that I'm calling. And and I don't see that in this code um, because the, that managed identity RBAC stuff is, is work, right? The, it's taking care of that for me automatically, which is very nice to see. So considerably less code, it seems to me, I can focus on the rules that my code needs and not the rules that some remote service needs. So considerably less, I think it's an understatement. It's literally three lines of code to get a token credential, create the, the reference to the, the container or the database, and create another call to either query or read the data, depending on what you want to do. But it's it's literally like four lines of code. It took me more time to configure the security aspect and the mass identity behind the scenes rather than writing the code. And that's impressive for developers. That really takes them you know, far ahead. Yeah, but even in the steps you have in that, blog posts around creating the service principle and granting it the correct RBAC roles. That's really straightforward too. Like there's, I think this whole thing is once you get the overall pattern of what you're doing, it's very, very simple to set up. Yeah, yeah. The, this maybe I'm springing this question on you out of right field, but do you know is is all that available in ARM templates yet? I know that there's some CLI commands that'll configure a bunch of that stuff, but do you know is that added to ARM templates yet? If I wanted to package up all my Azure bits into a, a template and push it out? That is a good question. Now, the Azure CLI and Azure PowerShell actually wrap around public endpoints. They are built on top of the, you know, the ARM REST API. Therefore, I would be surprised if ARM templates or bicep templates cannot do that out of the box. I haven't tried it yet, but that's uh, something that I can probably look into at some point in the future, you know? Automate the whole thing. <laughs> As about six weeks ago, there, there was no ARM template set up for creating a, an application registration or service principle, at least that from what I could see. So, But that's why I keep asking. Eventually, it'll show up and it'll make life easier. But but I, you can create the managed identity for a web app or a function app. I do know that. So that part is there. It, the, most of the pieces are there, just a couple to, to fill in the gaps. Yes. 
Yeah, so, so it's probably an ordering thing, right? You should probably create the web app first in your ARM template and create the mouse identity or set the mouse identity. Then you will need to have a variable that you can pass into your Cosmos DB creation to not only create the Cosmos um, uh, resources, but also create the container and then set the permissions inside that container as, as part of that. So that variable will need to be passed down the chain. And as I said, I will be surprised if we can do it because the Azure CLI and the PowerShell teams wrap around the RESTful arm. And in this example, you're adding the the role definition is the account name. And that account name is the, that's the service principle you've created, right? Ah, see, uh, that was the one thing I wanted to do was in my local environment, I didn't want to run as myself. So I created a service principle, which I signed in into uh, the Azure CLI. And okay. if you notice in the code, I have a chain token credential that only looks for two things, the Azure CLI credentials on my local environment. And because I don't have a managed identity, it wouldn't work. And the managed identity when I move to production. Therefore, in production, we won't find an Azure CLI. It will silently fail to the next available option. Okay. That's smart, which is the managed identity. And because in the Azure CLI, I am, if I sign in as myself, I have God-like permissions to my whole subscription. So it's very hard to see what happens. Therefore, having a service principle running that means I can make sure that the permissions are set correctly. If they're not set correctly, so you receive an error message. Yeah. You know, that that kind of reminds me of this is something that I have done and I wanted to share. If you set up the change token credential correctly, for example, using environment, when I'm running tests, I could set environment variables that might be a, a read-only user and a second is a account, which is read-write user. And it lets me then set environment, run some tests, blow, you know, delete it, set the environment differently, and that my code doesn't change. It just, it, the environment credential works or it doesn't work. And so uh, it's really pretty slick stuff there that these guys have built, so. Yes, yeah, they, they're really looking into a lot of the angles that, uh, all the edge cases. And I like also that, there's a lot more um, alignment on how we do things. So for example, we talked about Microsoft Identity.web earlier on, and now it taps into the Azure Identity Library as well. So once you authenticate with Microsoft Identity.web, you can actually uh, use the same library to go and speak to Azure services, which is brilliant, right? It's, it's all these things happening behind the scenes for developers, and you have to write less code and more secure code to achieve the same things as before. Yeah, it's really neat. No, I love your blog post too, because you go into so much detail. It's really great to see like that level of code snippets and explanation bit by bit. Um, I feel like I could go and write this myself now without too much trouble. So that's good. Job done. I can retire now. <laughs> so so tell me, the dev.to mm-hmm. with the 425 show, is dev.to, I mean, what, what that platform is just a broad, like a, a generic platform where any blogger can go create a blog. Is that the way I'd read that? It is. It's a dev.to slash 45 show. And we want to do that because we want to be where developers are. Yeah. As with uh, everything else these days, uh, it, it's hard to expect for developers to come to Microsoft for all the answers. And um, dev.to is a great platform. It's very focused on developer content. Like I wouldn't say that it's uh, wildly successful, but uh, we're getting a lot of good readership and comments and feedback and requests for more follow-ups and what have you. So we think that... Uh, it's a great way to connect with our community. Yeah, I've seen more of your the dev advocates at Microsoft using this as a place to post things. So that's really neat. There's an Azure org as well under dev.to. So they, I think they have more of a kind of an org where they put all the Azure-related content as well. That's great. Trying to be consistent. Hip, hip. 
at our old age. We try to be hip, hip and where right. the, the young developers are. We don't get we don't get older. We stay at the same age forever now. That's, that's the rule. I wish. Oh yeah, it is. We're still March twenty twenty, right? <laughs> it might as well be seven hundred and fifty. Well, look, I appreciate you jumping on the show and I'd encourage you all, if you haven't checked out um, their 425 show live stream, it is something I've jumped on and learned a lot just from them sharing. And as you've heard from this interview, fountain of knowledge here, you can throw any question at him and he's always got either an answer or an explanation of why he doesn't have the answer and where to go look for it. So definitely check that out. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, Christos, and thank you for all your effort in sharing everything you do around identity. It's uh, great to have you in that role um a few people told me last year that you were going to be jumping into that role and was super excited and you've certainly proved yourself in your time that you've been in that position so thank you so you know jeremy not only does he have the answers i asked him a question on twitter and just he i answered the question myself just because he was involved it was it's almost like a chuck norris of identity questions and answers so i'm going to be repeat that uh thanks for coming on the show it was great to have uh have you on here and look forward to more great stuff coming out of the identity space thank you for having me it's been a pleasure as always thanks guys thanks folks thanks for listening to the microsoft 365 developer podcast Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 